Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't start out tonight talking about the new Delta variant for COVID-19. Um, I'm sure you've already heard about it, but I just, I felt like I should do a little bit of talking about it. Um, as we were driving over here, NPR was talking about it. So, um, but the first thing I want you to do is to not panic. And I know that that's really hard when there's a lot of, uh, you know, news out there talking about how, you know, all of these new waves are coming out, but, I want you to not panic because panicking is like the worst thing we can do because then it makes us not be able to think about the actual actions that we should and can be taking. And so first let's, let's lay down some facts. Facts always help against panic. So fully vaccinated people are highly unlikely to develop a case of COVID-19 that requires hospitalization and or death. This is even including the new Delta variant. In Massachusetts, around 92% of cases did not require hospitalization, while 6.8% were hospitalized. Of those 6.8%, only 1.78% died. Now, obviously, any death is concerning, but when you compare this to the full population of residents who have been vaccinated, this represents just under two one-hundredths of a percentage, or 0.0019%. All available data continue to support that all three vaccines used in the U.S. are highly protective against severe disease and death from all known variants of COVID-19. The best way to protect yourself and your loved ones is to get vaccinated, the Department of Public Health said in a statement to the Boston Globe. The overall rate in the country is similar, with around 2% of those who develop COVID-19 dying. But again, that's 2% of those who developed COVID-19, which represents a very small percentage of the total population that has been vaccinated. We all know that no vaccine is 100% effective. Yes, the vaccines aren't perfect. We expect that some folks will still be infected, but both in the studies and in real-life evidence, they are awfully good, Dr. Eric Rubin, an infectious disease physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, told the Boston Globe last week. As for wearing masks, and that is the big thing that is in the news, I'd suggest that if you can wear one, you do so when in indoor spaces with people whose especially whose vaccination status is unknown to you, such as the grocery store or at a restaurant when not eating. Again, this is as much a precaution for yourself as for those who are not yet vaccinated or, and I I think that we have to remember that there are people that are genuinely unable to be vaccinated. Um, And so the vaccine hesitant are not the 
complete picture when we think about people who are not yet vaccinated. And so chances are that, again, you would not get a case of COVID-19 that was symptomatic if you developed COVID-19, but you could, it turns out, especially if you get the Delta variant or if you get the Delta variant, you could actually be shedding a lot of infectious particles. And so there's suggestions that if you get the Delta variant, people who are vaccinated are able to shed just as much uh, virus particle as those who are not vaccinated at all. And that's actually quite different from any of the other um, variants. And so that is a big difference. And there is one small study that suggested that people might be carrying up to a thousand times more virus particles than with those other variants. Basically, uh, it suggests that the Delta virus kind of dials it up to 11. But again, this is a small study, so it's not uh, definitive yet. But again, if you're fully vaccinated and take basic precautions, chances are you're going to be fine. If you're currently living in Western or Central Mass, we don't yet have significant outbreaks of the Delta variant that would qualify the CDC to really recommend masking. However, again, if you're concerned at all, by all means, start wearing a mask. Um, I'm often in the Worcester area on the weekends visiting my boyfriend, and we've started wearing masks again when we go to the grocery store, at least. Um, and so... Definitely, it's just a good precaution. And, um, you know, it's kind of a public service, really, when it comes right down to it, uh, in somewhat for yourself, but also, again, for other people. Um, and so, but if you can't wear a mask, I know um, my husband struggles with wearing a mask. And so I wouldn't say to him yet, you really have to make it work. Um, I'm okay with him still walking around and going into stores and shopping without a mask at the moment. Um, so again, not panicking, just using caution. And um, yeah, I think that we're going to get through this eventually. Uh, there is, you know, a long road ahead. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We uh, could end up having more variants. And if we do, there is the potentiality for one or more of them to develop uh, resistance to the vaccine. Uh, that's just a, you know, that's just a fact. And so the best thing you can do is keep yourself protected using masks, social distance if you can, uh, you know, make sure that you are fully vaccinated and, uh, you know, if you know people who haven't gotten the vaccine yet, um, the best way to persuade people to change their minds is with personal stories. Um, and so if you talk to people, don't tell them, you know, what is wrong with you um, or anything of that vein. It doesn't do anything to be... And it doesn't do any good to be angry at them. If they're wondering about the fact that the vaccines were, you know, done so quickly, you can try and explain to them a little bit. But 
going into too much detail just doesn't work. Um, unfortunately, the <laughs> the science on persuading people is rather depressing. But what people do find is that if you can connect on a personal level and say, this is why I did it. I did it because I have young children who can't be vaccinated. And I worry about them having to be exposed to, by, to people who haven't been vaccinated. Um, you know, try connecting with them on personal levels. Um, I'm doing it because I want to make sure that um, you know, my neighbor who has, who is immunocompromised and couldn't get the vaccine still has the ability to not worry about becoming infected. Now, of course, some people just did it because of the science. I mean, I'm one of those people who is like, you know, I, the, the science is good and I don't want to get sick. And so the second I could get it, I was basically um, basically, the second that the window opened for the ones that I could get, I was on the computer trying to find a uh, appointment. You know, I went to I went to Greenfield, not to Greenfield. I went to Pittsfield. I mean, I went to Pittsfield to get my vaccine because I wanted it so badly. Um, and so, yeah. But a lot of people are still out there who haven't done it. And we need to figure out something. Um, and, you know, the the lotteries and things like that are incentives to some, but um, I'm, you know, I don't have good answers and I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. So uh, I think I'm going to leave it there for tonight uh, with the uh, renewed caveat to not panic. Okay, so let's let's move on now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about regular old science stuff for the rest of the night. So we're going to start out by talking about the discovery of what may be the oldest animal life yet discovered. The 890 million year old fossils of what look like very much like ancient sponges were found in Canada's Northwest Territories. Invisible to the naked eye, when viewed under the microscope, the preserved organic tissue is organized into a mesh-like structure that actually happens to closely resemble an object many people might actually have in their homes at this moment. The structures are very close to the skeleton fibers in modern natural bath sponges. These are part of a soft-bodied group of sponges known as keratose demosponges, or horny sponges, um, which is fun. <laughs> so if you have a sponge that was actually harvested from the ocean rather than made in a uh, factory, then it looks pretty much like that. If you put that under a microscope, these fossils would look very close to that. And so researchers have long suspected that the first true animal life might be a sponge. And if this discovery holds up, it will push back the oldest known sponge species by around 350 million years. Author Elizabeth Turner, a professor of carbonate sedimentology and invertebrate paleontology at Laurentian University in Ontario, Canada, 
first noticed these fossils actually back in the early 90s when examining samples of fossil reefs that had been built by cyanobacteria, kind of like stromatolites. And so examining slices of rock via microscope, she found some samples, quote, that was a lot more complicated than cyanobacteria. I thought it looked a bit like some sponge fossils from younger rocks. But as this wasn't her area of, of research at the time or really expertise, she set them aside until years later when she returned for another sampling expedition. By then, papers had been written describing other fossilized sponges that looked suspiciously like the ones that she'd set aside. If you look at the body of a fossil sponge microscopically, it has this characteristic microstructure, which was described and characterized and fully affiliated with the spongin, a type of collagen protein skeleton in modern keratose demosponges, she said, and it's the identical structure to what I have. And so she described her find in the latest issue of Nature. And she explains that the find makes sense given that the cyanobacteria would have been producing abundant amounts of oxygen. And so cyanobacteria could also have been providing food for the sponges in the form of polysaccharides shed from their cell walls and floating in the water around the reef in a kind of nutritious goo. <laughs> There are a lot of good reasons why a sponge might have lived in the exact environment where I found these putative fossil sponges, Turner said. And so the branching tendrils are also reminiscent of ancient fungi, including an example found earlier this year, which represents the oldest example of a land fungi. Dating to 635 million years ago. Yes, I choose to uh, <laughs> pronounce it both ways. That's, that's what I've been going with lately. If you can say it more than once, do it either way. But anyways, uh, Turner was able to determine that her samples actually aren't fungi because they show the characteristic fibers which branch and rejoin in three-dimensional networks that is the hallmark of both fossil and modern sponges. Fungi, on the other hand, join at right angles. This material, what we call spongin, that's a complex protein compound. It's very resistant against microbial degradation, said Joaquin Reitner, a professor in the Center for Geosciences at Georges Auguste University in Göttingen, Germany, who reviewed the study for nature. That's why we have these spongin fiber networks in the fossil record. That type of network is characteristic of sponges. You can classify the type of sponges on the basis of the spongin network. No other organism make that. Organisms make that, he said. And so, again, this is a really important find. Um, and it seems like it will bear out. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that it will. And so... This pushes back the uh, first instance in the fossil record by, you know, a lot. And so basically, before 580 million years ago, fossil evidence of animals is basically non-existent. 
And so this isn't a surprise though, because most of them were soft-bodied animals. In fact, all of them were. And so they don't fossilize well. But they can sometimes be inferred from biomarkers. And so in 2018, traces of cholesterol from a fossil dating to 558 million years ago confirmed that a weird soft-bodied creature called Dickinsonia was indeed an animal. Um, and I forgot to put it on the website, but uh, I'll try and remember to uh, put some of the um, weird fossils that I'm going to, uh, or weird remain uh, remains that I'm going to talk about tonight on the website, because some of them are very odd looking, <laughs> uh, including Dickinsonia. So, um, and so a fossil described as a sponge based on steroids in 2009, however, when re-examined in 2020, they, the researchers came to believe that it was a mistake and that the sterols were actually made by decaying algae rather than an animal. And so sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I definitely think that Dickinsonia holds up and again, very weird. And so while remains are scarce, molecular clock calculations based on DNA suggested that sponges were indeed much older than their first appearance in the fossil record. If I'm correct in my interpretations of this material, animals emerged long before they, the appearance of traditional animal fossils. They have a long prehistory, Turner said. So, yeah, I think that's very cool. And uh, I, again, this is totally a theme that I love, the fact that, you know, often scientists go back and re-examine things. And so you might do a bunch of collecting one day and put everything, you know, label everything and put it in a box on a shelf, sometimes in your lab, sometimes in the back room of a museum. And then someone, either you or someone else comes along, pulls it back out, and we're able to find out new things. And um, there's just so much that we don't know yet um, about the world. And it's there's so many things that we can still learn. Um, and so I think that's totally awesome. And so another recently described fossil is also an outstanding find. John Peterson, professor of earth sciences at the University of New England, and his colleagues have discovered a 310 million year old horseshoe crab, which is, you know, not particularly amazing, but this one happens to have a very clearly demarked fossilized brain. And so this adds to other recent finds that have expanded our horizons as to what can be preserved from soft-bodied animals in the fossil record. The fossils of the Euproops Dene was recovered from the Maison Creek area of Illinois. For many years, researchers have had to mainly rely on the remains of arthropods trapped in amber in order to examine, image and examine the brains of ancient arthropods. However, this amber gallery only reaches back to the Triassic period around 230 million years ago. A few examples have come from a Burgess Shales-type deposit, 
Um, and those usually come from uh, Langerstatten, which is a great word, uh, which is the German word for an exceptional fossil bed. And so in this case, they generally come from the Cambrian period between 500 and 520 million years ago. These are some of the oldest unmistakable animals preserved as carbon films in mudstone that help us to understand the origins and evolution of animals. Having been swept up in storm-induced mud flows and buried in the seafloor in low oxygen conditions, over time the mud turned to stone and was compressed, leaving the animals sandwiched in the rock's layers. Many of these fossils have preserved internal organs, it's true, but mostly gut organs rather than parts of the central nervous system, such as the optic nerve, ventral nerve cord, or the brain. But the horseshoe crab fossil comes from a totally different preservation site. At Mason Creek, the fossil deposits are preserved within concretions made from siderite, a kind of iron carbonate mineral. One of the most famous fossils found in this area is the Tully Monster, an entirely soft-bodied and confusingly shaped early animal. I'll put a link to the Tully Monster as well. This latest find shows that the fossils preserved here were not only molded by the rapid formation of the siderite, but that it encased them quickly enough in order to preserve their internal soft tissue. In this case, the brain of Euproops is replicated by a white-colored clay mineral called kaolinite. This was a stroke of luck, as the researchers might otherwise not even have noticed the uh, brain impression. What's especially exciting about this find is that the brain anatomy can actually be compared to living examples of related species. There are four species of living horseshoe crabs which have similar brain anatomy, despite a gap of 310 million years. So yeah, this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> and in fact, when you look at the pictures of the two brains, so they have a picture of the actual fossil, and then they have an impression of the fossil, kind of like a black and white photocopy uh, kind of impression. And then they have the diagram and um, I believe a picture of a actual, you know, um, horseshoe crab that was collected very recently. And when you look at the two brains, they're so similar. It's really amazing considering that there's 310 uh, thousand years of evolution between the two of them. And of course, that's a big thing about evolution, uh, which is that if something is working, evolution doesn't try and change it. So if a horseshoe crab developed in a way that keeps it healthy and happy and has allowed it to continue to uh, flourish in some respect and, you know, 310 thousand years later, it's still here, then there's no need to change it. And a lot of people, I think, um, you know, often say, well, you know, if we're not, we can't see evolution, you know, things aren't happening. Things that are, you know, looked that way thousands of years ago still look that way today. And it's like, yeah, that's actually a part of evolution. <laughs> like that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> okay. 
So it's apparently been a really good week for uh, discussions of fossils and for finding big deal fossils. And so paleontologists have uncovered a major graveyard of Jurassic era sea creatures in a limestone quarry in the Cotswolds of all places. They estimate that it could include tens of thousands of marine invertebrates called echinoderms. Fun fact, echinoderms means hedgehog skin in Greek, which I love. And so these represent ancestors of modern starfish, sea cucumbers, sea urchins, and sea lilies. And so the site apparently contains immaculately preserved remains of the animals at all stages of life, according to a statement from the Natural History Museum of London. And so these ancient marine creatures were basically apparently minding their own business when literally calamity struck. Um, They suspect it might have been a mudslide triggered by an earthquake, but basically something happened and it covered the animals and trapped them under this mud in order to then be discovered some 167 million years later. What we've got here is a sort of Jurassic Pompeii, Neville Hollingsworth, an amateur fossil hunter who discovered the cache on a hike with his wife, Sally, told the BBC. (laughs) Um, The creature's tried to protect themselves, adopting the stress position of pulling their arms in, but it was all in vain, Tim Ellen, a paleontologist and senior curator at the Natural History Museum of London, also told the BBC. They were pushed into the sediment and buried alive. And so the site dates to the Middle Jurassic between 200 and 145 million years ago, when dinosaurs ruled the land. Uh, Remember, dinosaurs are only on the land, and so anything that was in the air or in the sea at that time, even if it looked really like a dinosaur, it was something else. (laughs) And so uh, the echinoderms were having basically a grand time. They were evolving and filling in niches that were left behind during a massive extinction at the end of the Triassic period, which took out up to half of all marine species alive at the time. And so echinoderms are known for their limbs, which radiate from the body in sets of five. Some have developed the ability, well, they have all basically developed the ability to grab passing food, some with their spiny arms, and some like starfish and sea cucumbers are actually able to feel their way along the ocean floor. Others, like sea lilies, evolved to stay put, anchoring themselves to rocks or coral and basically waiting for the food to come to them. And so at this time, the area would have been a shallow sea, most likely between 65 and 130 feet. And it actually would have been situated closer to modern day North Africa and thus would have had much warmer water. Despite not knowing what cataclysm caused the sudden burial, researchers are very grateful it happened. It will allow them to hopefully better understand the evolution of echinoderms during this period and will probably involve the description of several new species. So yeah, the site is truly remarkable. The researchers also found bits of wood and pollen samples in the rock, which could help them to determine more about 
climate changes at the time. We'll describe in detail the new species and describe the variability of the plants and animals we have found at the site, Owen said in a statement. There will be another project looking at the population dynamics of the particular echinoderm groups and what that tells us about their ecology. So yeah, pretty spectacular. All right, we are going to take a break for some PSAs and some show promos. And when we're com- come back, we are going to switch gears completely. And uh, we are once more going to go back to Mars into uh, space because I can't help it. I'm just addicted to talking about uh, Mars rovers. Uh, so sorry. Um, please do come back and join me on the journey. Um, and so, yeah. We'll be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. Radio should be fun. So on Sundays, we get weird. Mad Hatter's Mix. Challenge Normal from 1 to 3. Connect the dots with me from Tori Amos to Weird Al to Muse to the Proto Men to Monty Python and back to Tori Amos. Sketches, stand up, some kickin' tunes. Mad Hatter's Mix. Sundays at 1 on 103.3 WXOJ, Valley Free Radio. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists, combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey, this is Maddie, host of Planet Emo, a show that aims to bring you the latest and greatest in emo music from Massachusetts and beyond. If you ask 10 different people what emo music is, you'll get 10 very different answers. And my goal is to bring in every one of those perspectives. From 80s hardcore to the power pop of today, we'll hear it all. For your dose of early morning feelings, catch Planet Emo from 6 to 7 a.m. every Thursday right here on Valley Free Radio. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash blind. 
tune in to Straight to the Music on Sunday evenings with yours truly, Miasha Lee, giving you a dose of serious R&B, only on 103.3 FM, Northampton. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. The Town Crier, my new music and arts and entertainment show, airs Thursday morning from 7 to 9. Every week we update listeners on what's happening in our vibrant communities. We'll talk to gallery owners, brewers, poets, restaurateurs, and more. We'll also take a musical road trip to one of our amazing musical scenes. Tune in from 7 to 9 on Thursday morning. Okay, we are back and we are going to continue to talk about, um, like I said, we are going to actually be talking about uh, space at this point. And so it is very exciting. And so the first thing we are going to be talking about is... (laughs) Sorry, I lost my uh I lost my mind for a second. Give me just a second. <laughs> um we're going to be talking about the amazing and just incredible ingenuity uh which is the little helicopter making big air on Mars. And so the rotorcraft has completed its 10th flight this past Saturday. Each flight has pushed the limits of the prototype. And so this last flight actually involved Ingenuity climbing to 40 feet in the Martian air, which marks a new altitude record, before heading south by southwest toward rock features called raised ridges. It then came back towards the landing spot, but actually moved again and actually landed around 310 feet west. And so the rotocopter had already flown almost a full mile. And this, of course, sealed that benchmark. The flight took under three minutes, but all 10 distinct waypoints the controllers had mapped out were successfully hit and Ingenuity snapped lots of pictures along the path. So this now means that the rotocopter has doubled the amount of planned missions. It's now scouting new terrain and testing operations NASA is considering for future helicopters, which will visit Mars in the future. Now, it's really been put through the ringer a couple of times, like it has been doing stellar work. Uh, The sixth flight uh, we talked about, it encountered a uh, glitch in the uh, imaging sensor and the systems had to compensate and it almost crashed, but it managed to sort itself out. And in the ninth flight, this involved actually flying over rough terrain, which can confuse that same optical dynamic system that allows the copter to know where it is and how to land. Um, and so, yeah, it's 
it's seen some stuff already. <laughs> and so basically, uh, as far as we can tell at the moment, NASA engineers are basically going to let the instrument continue to uh, operate until something goes wrong and causes the mission to end. And in fact, those raised ridges may have once had flowing water. And so Ingenuity was actually able to snap color images of intriguing rock outcrops that Percy might want to visit later in its mission. We're hoping the color images will provide the closest look yet at Pilot Pinnacle, a location featuring outcrops that were that some team members think may record some of the deepest water environments in Old Lake Yezero. NASA scientists wrote in a recent blog post, but Percy might not actually have a chance to go there. It's got lots of things to do, and some of them might take more time um, or other things might pop up that are more compelling. So ingenuity may offer the only opportunity to study these deposits in any detail, the scientist said. And so, yeah, another incredible overachieving mission for the NASA crew to be proud of. I just, I'm blown away. It is doing so well and so amazing considering that they, you know, there was real question as to whether or not it would ever even get off the surface of the planet. So uh, leaving Ingenuity and Percy, back in Gale Crater, Curiosity has made another discovery. Data from the rover has suggested that evidence of life may actually have been washed away by brines or really super salty waters. But this actually isn't all bad news. In fact, it might be good news. While examining clay-rich sedimentary rocks near its landing site, the former lake, created by an asteroid strike around 3.6 billion years ago, and so it found that these clays. And so clay is often created when rocky minerals weather away after contact with water, which is a requirement for life. It can also preserve microbial fossils. But when Curiosity sampled two different areas of mudstone, dated to the same time and just 1,300 feet away from one another, one sample contained only half as much clay as the other. Rather, it held greater quantities of iron oxides, which is basically the dominant kind of uh, mineral on the planet and the one that makes it red. Researchers believe this is due to brine, again, super salty water, which penetrated the rock layers and flushed the clay away, wiping the geological and biological record clean. We used to think that once these layers of clay minerals formed at the bottom of the lake in Gale Crater, they stayed that way, preserving the moment in time they formed for billions of years. Study lead author Tom Bristow, a researcher at NASA's Ames Research Center in Mount View, California, said in a statement. But later brines broke down these clay minerals in some places, essentially resetting the rock record. Now, the rover drilled into the rock and then used the Kemen instrument to investigate the chemistry and mineralogy of the samples. Chemical transformation in sediments is called diagenesis, and somewhat 
unintuitively, it can actually create new life, even as it erases traces of old life. These are excellent places to look for evidence of ancient life and gauge habitability, study co-author John Grotzinger, a geology professor at Cal Institute of Technology, said in a statement. Even though diagenesis may erase the signs of life in the original lake, it creates the chemical gradients necessary to support subsurface life. So we are really excited to have discovered this. And so the findings are published in the journal Science. And so they note that we're, we've learned something very important. There are some parts of the Martian rock record that aren't so good at preserving evidence of the planet's past and possible life. Co-author Ashwin Vasavada, a curiosity project scientist at NASA's, at NASA's JPL, uh, said in a statement, the fortunate thing is we find both close together in Gale Crater and can use mineralogy to tell us which is which. So very cool. And uh, definitely still looking forward to the possibility of them finding signs of microbial uh, life on Mars. I mean, there's definitely a non-zero chance that that is something that could have happened. And so, yeah, I think it would be really cool. But uh, let's move again to another part of Mars. <laughs> there just were a lot of Mars uh, uh, stories this week. But, you know, I mean, I think because we're doing so much there these days, we have so many probes and so many landers and rovers. And, you know, it makes sense that we're getting all of this information out. So we're actually going to continue to talk about clay. And so a new study posits that the lakes, quote unquote, identified from bright reflections of radar beneath the south pole of Mars may instead simply be deposits of clay. In 2018, researchers used the ESA's Mars Express spacecraft with its Marsis radar sounder to detect evidence of a lake below the southern ice cap. In 2020, signs of a number of brine lakes were detected. But the researchers, and so the researchers had hoped that if there was water under the polar ice cap, like there is on Earth, it might, also like on Earth, have supported and may even still harbor microbial life. But there's a problem, according to a new study by Isaac Smith and uh, his colleagues. Uh, Smith is a planetary scientist at York University in Toronto. And they basically point out that such a large amount of liquid water would require a very large amount of heat and salt, which they don't believe is currently available on the planet. Smith and his team instead believe that the radar data can be best explained by clay deposits. Among the Mars community, there has been skepticism about the lake interpretation, but no one had offered a really plausible alternative, Smith told Space.com. So it's exciting to be able to demonstrate that something else can explain the radar observations and to demonstrate that the material is present where it would need to be. I love solving puzzles, and Mars has an infinite number of puzzles. And so they believe that the clay deposits may consist of a type of mineral called smectites, which have a chemical composition closer to volcanic rock than other kinds of clay. 
Smectites are formed when volcanic rock erodes and undergoes mild chemical changes after interacting with water. It can then actually hold onto a lot of water. This type of clay is extremely common on Mars, mostly found in its southern highlands. On Earth, they're commonly found near volcanoes in Alaska or Central America, but can be found on every continent, Smith said. To test their theory, they cooled smectites to 45 degrees Fahrenheit, mimicking the cold of a Martian night. They found that the waterlogged smectites could generate the kind of bright radar signatures detected by Marsis, short for... Sorry about that. Um, I seem to be allergic to something here. Um, Short for Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionospheric Sounding. And so they could tell it was there even when mixed with other materials. Analyzing previously collected visible and near-infrared data collected from the pole, they also found evidence of smectites. They believed the deposits would have formed during Mars's warm periods and then were buried under water ice when the planet cooled. Looking backwards in time to when Mars was much wetter, this supports evidence that liquid water was present over a larger area than we anticipated, Smith said. Because these clays are at and beneath the south polar cap, it must have been warm enough there long ago to support liquids. And so... One of the other things that this uh, study shows is the strength of science, basically as a whole. And so Smith says, science is a process and scientists are always working towards the truth, showing that another material besides liquid water can make the radar observations doesn't mean that it was wrong to publish the first results in 2018. That gave a lot of people ideas for new experiments, modeling and observations, Those ideas will translate to other investigations of Mars and already are for my team. And so he goes on to say that in the future, I would like to repeat the measurements at even colder temperatures and with a more diverse set of clays, uh, he said. There are other types of clays found on Mars that I suspect can also make these reflections, and it would be good to follow up with them. So that is very cool uh, and very true that science is built upon other science. And so, you know, we used to believe in the ether and eventually people kept thinking about the ether and they found ways to experiment to figure out whether or not the ether was there. And most of them expected that the ether was going to be there and then it just wasn't. And so people had to change their ideas about the ether. And so this is a little more monument, a little less monumental, I should say, Uh, but it's in the same exact vein. Okay, so we are going to move on and talk about uh, other parts of space. Uh, um, And so astronomers have confirmed the first concrete evidence of a planet with a moon forming disk around it. There are only two exoplanets we can currently observe that are not yet finished forming. 
PDS-7b and PDS-70c. They were first found using the Very Large Telescope, and they are our current window into the process of planet formation, and to now, it seems, moon formation. The presence of a moon-forming disk was confirmed using ALMA, or the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile. And so astronomers have believed for a long time that PDS-70C was indeed surrounded by an accretion disk, but previous imaging was unable to confirm this hypothesis. So now there is photographic proof, which is pretty exciting given the fact that we know less about moon formation than we do about planet formation. And in fact, there's still debate about how Earth's own moon was formed. But this confirmation gives us a chance to see at least one moon taking shape. In fact, there's enough material in the disk to form three moons the size of our Luna around the Jupiter-like planet. Moon formation also plays a key part in planetary formation, with the disk surrounding the forming planet influencing its creation. Being able to observe this moon formation, therefore, will tell astronomers more about both the formation of moons and planets. Now, this isn't to actually say that we'll be able to see a moon form around the planet. That will take millions of years, but it's the first chance we've had to study any step in the process firsthand. Unfortunately, the same survey proved that PDS-70b does not have an accretion disk, so we only get one. <laughs> but this too could be interesting because researchers can look for reasons why the two planets formed, or really are in the process of forming, differently. And so that is some very cool stuff going on there. Okay, we are going to slide a bit deeper into astrophysics now and discuss a new finding that confirms, yet again, one of Einstein's theoretical predictions of general relativity. Um, Einstein was right a lot. Um, he didn't like quantum physics, so there's a couple things out there that he said that uh, haven't held up, mostly because I think he just found them far too inelegant. Um, but yeah. <laughs> and so he theorized that the magnetic and gravitational forces around a black hole would be so extreme that light should bend around it and re be reflected back at the observer from behind the black hole. And for the first time, this phenomena has been observed. Researchers observed X-ray echoes from a supermassive black hole 800 million light years away in the galaxy Iswicky 1. This very clearly confirms Einstein's predictions. Any light that goes into that black hole doesn't come out, so we shouldn't be able to see anything that's behind the black hole, said astrophysicist Dan Wilkins of Stanford University. The reason we can see the X-ray echoes is because that black hole is warping space, bending light and twisting magnetic fields around itself. And so there are several components to the area around a black hole. The event horizon, an accretion disk, which is so hot due to friction and magnetism that electrons are actually stripped from atoms forming magnetized plasma, and the corona, an area just outside the event horizon of an active black hole on the inner edge of the accretion disk. 
This area is extremely, this is an area of extremely hot electrons and is thought to be powered by the black hole's magnetic field. It acts much the same way that the sun's corona does, twisting and snapping before reconnecting. But instead of sending out powerful solar eruptions like the sun does, it instead acts like a synchrotron to accelerate the electrons so much that they shine brightly in X-ray wavelengths. This magnetic field getting tied up and then snapping close to the black hole heats everything around it and produces these high-energy electrons that then go on to produce the X-rays, Wilkins explained. Some of the X-ray photons irradiate the accretion disk and are reprocessed via photoelectric absorption and fluorescence, and then readmitted in what astrophysicists call a reverberation echo, or a reflection in the X-ray spectrum. This output can be used to map the region closest to the event horizon. Wilkins and his team were studying the corona and took observations in January 2020 using the New Star and XMM Newton X-ray observatories. They saw the usual X-ray flares in the data, but also noted another signal, smaller, later flashes of X-ray light in a different part of the spectrum. Wilkins realized that these were consistent with light coming from behind the black hole. I've been building theoretical predictions of how these echoes appear for a, to us for a few years, Wilkins explained. I'd already seen them in the theory I've been developing, so once I saw them in the telescope observation, I could figure out the connection. And so they published their findings recently in the journal Nature. And so, again, not only is it exciting to confirm another prediction by Einstein, but it shows how far we've come in being able to study black holes, which are in the end technically invisible, only being detectable by the forces they exert on the space around them. And our understanding of these weird objects is almost certainly going to get better as a new crop of state-of-the-art telescopes are in the pipeline. And so, yeah, there is going to be so much more we're going to learn. And, you know, this is one of the big frontiers, obviously, is processes that are involving space and how do things evolve and, you know, astronomy just gets better, keeps getting better and better because we keep getting access to better and better technology. And this is definitely a, uh, you know, this is definitely a place where that technology really comes in uh, handy. And so in some places, you know, the technology isn't a big deal. It's about the um you know, the theories and the figuring things out. But here, you know, the more you can see, the better you can figure out what's going on. And so, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And I definitely look forward to seeing more in the future. But for tonight, that is all the time we have. So uh, thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.